We are into uh, a, a series of chapters today that uh, honestly, folks, I feel, like, and I very, very rarely say this, I feel there's a, an urgency um, for people to understand what is being said here today from God's work. And I don't often say that, folks, you're not going to hear that from me too, too often, but I do feel there's a sense of urgency. I'm not sure why, but I think for many people, what we're going to talk about today is stunning and a surprising, maybe a little bit shocking, a little bit disturbing, and maybe you haven't heard it before. I'm going to talk about hardened hearts and stiff necks. Hardened hearts and stiff necks from the book of Romans, which we've been in, in this series. And we're going to cover three chapters today, Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. You say, uh, Pastor, I thought you said there's a dinosaur movie playing here at 1 o'clock. Well, we're not going to go through every chapter, and we're not going to go through every verse, but we're really going to cover the whole thing uh, because when you read what Paul is saying here in this letter, he's got the whole thing in three chapters. He's going to talk about something that's very pressing to him and also really very pressing to us. When we think about it, it does have a great effect on our lives today. And it, it sounds almost like a, an internal issue, like a side issue, uh, that Paul is dealing with, and so why should we care about this? But I, I hope to show you today why it's so important. Have you ever asked the question, because Paul's going to ask it and deal with it in three chapters here. If Jesus was Jewish, right, and at the beginning of Romans, Paul talks about that whole thing about how God doesn't favor, you know, Jews over Gentiles and all of this and all of their laws and all of their religion and all of that does not save them. And he goes into that. But if you ask yourself the question, if Jesus was Jewish, if this whole thing started Jewish, if all the people who were the first followers of Jesus were Jews and they were, then why are there so few now? And even in Paul's day, he recognized that. Folks, the, the bulk of people, the majority, probably the majority of the people who Jesus went to, who the apostles went to, the bulk of Judaism had a big problem with Jesus. I mean, it's, it's rather startling. It seems like even the most religious had the biggest problems. And Jesus had the biggest problems with the most religious people, didn't he? I mean, he had some serious confrontations with the ultra-Orthodox, the, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees. He had very sharp confrontations with these people. And you see that to a degree, certainly to a measurable degree, he is rejected. And the message is rejected by his own people to a degree. And yet, the first followers of Jesus were indeed Jewish. And so today, the, the absolute reverse has happened. So 95 to 98%, it's probably even higher, of people who profess to believe in Jesus worldwide are not Jewish. You may say, who cares? 
Paul cares, and he's going to teach something here as to why it's so important, so important for you and so important for me. My background is Jewish, so I'm, a, I'm the, the oddball uh, in all of you, you know, but that's the way that it is around the world. Why? Why is this? Why is this true? Why does this happen? And Paul is very, very burdened about this, and he's going to talk about this and try to explain it to his audience with several different lessons. This message that we have today was kind of birthed in one of our Wednesday night Bible study questions that came up. And a, a person asked a question that I thought was very, very important, and it kind of naturally led into this message. Um, Paul is, is going to show in Romans 9, 10, and 11 how burdened he is for his own people. He's, a, he's a, an ultra-religious Jew, and he's very burdened for his own people. And he tries to explain why they have in large not believed and what's going to happen as a result and what is happening as a result. And he, he, he brilliantly does this. He pulls from many different places in the Old Testament, many different uh, prophets and the law and even from first Kings and even from the book of Exodus. He goes all the way back there, and he pulls something out of there that I think is, is hugely significant. And it came from this question that was asked on a Wednesday night. Uh, so just to intro, you know, the most famous story in the Old Testament, the most famous miracle in the Old Testament is what, in your estimation? Yeah, it's, the, it's most probably the crossing of the Red Sea, the exodus, right? Charlton Heston, if you remember Charlton Heston. How many of you don't know who Charlton Heston was is? It's okay if you don't. But the, the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, you know, in the modern day, the animated Prince of Egypt and the whole story of the exodus and the parting of the sea. There is a character, a person, in the Exodus story that's very important to understand how God worked with this character, this person, because he, Paul brings it all the way back to this question. And the person is the Pharaoh. And we know that as we read through the story, the Pharaoh's heart is hard. He's got a hard heart a hardened heart. In some places, it says that God hardens his heart. In other places, it says that his heart is hard. It seems like his heart is hard, and God also hardened his heart. He's got a hardened heart through the story. And the question was put out in this little Bible study that we have on Zoom well, did God harden his heart, I think was the question, or was his heart hardened? How did that whole thing work? And in Romans, Paul brings this up in Romans chapter 9. And he quotes from the Exodus story, from Exodus 9, where God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power 
in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So I am using you, the Pharaoh. And Paul comments on this and he says, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Verse 18, Romans chapter 9. The, 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 when you look back at this hardened heart of Pharaoh, you say, what's this got to do with the Jewish people and the question you ask? You'll see in a moment. But when you look back at this hardened heart, what is that? Why was God doing that? You find a fascinating truth when you study the context of the Exodus story and how God dealt with Pharaoh. Even how all those plagues took place one after the other. And you can go back and see all the different plagues that happened. The ten plagues concluding with the, the taking of the firstborn. And Pharaoh loses his firstborn child through this final plague. And you watch how God interacts with him throughout the whole story. When you study the context of that and you look back into the history books and back into the archaeology, you find something rather staggering. It seems that God, through the whole thing, through the, the plagues, through even this phrase, the hardening of the heart, it seems that God is trying to illustrate his dominance, his superiority, his truth, his power, his glory over the religious view of the day. It's like he's trying to shame the pagan worship system and the Egyptian worship system. Some scholars call it a polemic. It's like a sermon that God is preaching and declaring against their religious view. And you see it in the plagues. All of those plagues, those things are attached to various gods and goddesses of the whole Egyptian system. Some say there's 74, at least 74 that they have found in the history books and in the rocks. And they say, look, the frogs, there was a God that was in charge of this. There was a God that's in charge of that. And it seems like God is almost mocking those other gods and declaring that they are inferior to him. Right down to this whole thing of the hardening of the heart. On the screen, you see from uh, the old, old uh, hieroglyphs there and the, the way the Egyptians uh, wrote and all of that, this is called the weighing of the heart. This is a depiction of what they believed about the afterlife. And what's happening there is that the heart of the Pharaoh is being weighed supernaturally. The, on the left-hand side, you see the Pharaoh and his wife, and you see in the center, there's a kind of a scale there. You see the Anubis, I think it is, who's overseeing that, and, there, and the, the, the Pharaoh's heart is being weighed up against a feather 
which represented truth. And what would happen in this ceremony is that the, the belief, at least, was that the, uh, the Pharaoh had to negatively confess against whatever sin that was being charged against him. No, I did not do this. No, I did not do this. No, I did not do this. And the belief was that the heart would tell the truth. Whatever the Pharaoh said in this hall of the afterlife, the heart would tell the truth and they would weigh the heart. And if the heart was heavier than the feather, then the person, the Pharaoh, would be destroyed. They, in their view, the, the, um, uh, the figure on the right-hand side of your screen there would devour as a demon and it would devour the, the Pharaoh. And so that heart had to be light lighter than that feather if it was heavier he loses if it's lighter he wins and so he there was this thing called negative confession again in their belief system where they would have to negatively confess against all these accusations and they would watch the heart and see what would happen and so lo and behold what they what they did because of their belief in this and you can see this in the in the egyptian book of the dead and so on all of these things are well documented for us don't take my word for it look it up online what they would do is they believe that they could help the pharaoh could be helped in this ceremony in the afterlife by hardening his heart and they would take a, a scarab, uh, they would make it out of an insect. You see one on the screen. It's very, very small in real life. It's just a few centimeters tall and wide. And they would take this, this scarab, or this shell of this insect, and they would put a spell on one side of it. You can see the spell there. And the spell would be recited to keep the heart quiet. So that in this ceremony, in the realm of the dead, the heart would not, the heart would be quiet. The heart would be light. It would not testify against the Pharaoh. The scale would be light and the Pharaoh would make it into paradise, you see. And so they would take this scarab and they would put it over the chest of the Pharaoh when they buried him, thus hardening the heart. I don't think it's a coincidence, folks, that God uses that phrase. The, the pharaohs were thought to be, their word, their commands, their utterances were thought to be final because they were deified, these pharaohs, and nobody could change their mind. Nobody could change their word. Nobody could change their decree. And here you have God saying, oh, I can. I will harden his heart. I will change his mind. I will use him, and I will declare him to be for my purpose. And you see, you have God demonstrating his superiority over the whole system, over their, all of their beliefs, right down to this hardening of the heart. What's this got to do with the question of Paul? Well, Paul will argue in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, and he'll bring up this the, the Pharaoh at the beginning and talk about the hardening of his heart. And he will say, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And then if you, if you think about this question 
that he's asking and the burden that he has for his own people. And you look across the centuries of Judaism, starting right from the book of Acts, right up until the modern age, you see something very uh, disturbing in some ways, but very clear in other ways, and it's a lesson that all of us can learn from. Folks, you need to understand, because I know Christians, they, they just don't, un, they don't get why is it that it's so obvious, you know, you read the Old Testament, it's so obvious, it's leaping off the page, Jesus over here and Jesus over there. Why don't they believe? Why don't they get it? You have to understand the modern view of Christianity that Jewish people have. And it's not even that modern focus, centuries, centuries. It's not coming from the Bible. We sometimes think that Jewish people read the Bible all the time and they get their views of, of Christianity from the Bible. Well, number one, they reject the New Testament, so they don't even read it at all. And uh, number two, whatever they understand from Christianity is not from the Bible. It's from what Christians have done to them. It's from their history, it's from what they understand, and, and they are not always kind in how they interpret the history, but that's how they get it, folks. And when you study that, and when you look at that, you're going to find something really, really clear, but really disturbing, I think, at the same time. You start with the book of Acts, and you see in the book of Acts what all of these early believers are Jewish. The biggest controversy in the book of Acts is, hello, God says, I want non-Jewish people too. I want them too. I don't just want you. I want everybody. And the biggest controversy is all of these non-Jewish people are becoming Christ followers and the Jewish people don't know what to do with them. They say, but look at them. They don't know anything. The men aren't circumcised. They don't know the law. They, don't, they come from this lifestyle. They're, they're, they, they hated them. And yet God loved them and saw and people saw that God is accepting these non-Jewish people too in droves by the thousands and thousands and it would start to swell. You see it even in the book of Acts. That's the biggest controversy. Very much like if you saw the, the movie that we screened a couple of weeks ago, The Jesus Revolution, when all of those hippies, if you remember, started coming into that nice, clean, you know, sanitary church with the new shag carpets and so on and everybody wearing jackets and ties. And when all those dirty hippies came in, the people were shocked. They say, what? Well, we don't want them here. But, but the view of the pastor was, well, but God does. But God does. And it changed the whole face of the... I mean, folks, even modern churches today, even our church to some degree draws an influence from that whole movement. Folks, contemporary worship and people up on a stage and guitars, and th th that has its roots back in that movement because the, the, the idea was God wants everybody. He doesn't just want one kind of person. And so this is what you see in the book of Acts. And you see a lot of new people coming to Jesus who are not Jewish. You see this. And then you start to see there's persecution in the air. It's not just a religious kind of thing where you've got religious Jews who are saying no, 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 and being stubborn against this thing. It's not just that. You see the Roman Empire start to rise up against this new Christian movement. And you will see this uh, through until the end of the book of Acts. And then you'll see it after, if you look at the history 
after the book of Acts is finished and you look at the early church history and, the, uh, and you see it, you, will, you see that there's definite persecution. These Roman emperors were not kind to Christianity at all. Christianity, in fact, became a crime. And so the Christians would reach to their Jewish counterpart for support, claiming, hey, we come out of you. Like we're, we, it, because the Romans accepted Judaism, it predated Rome, and so they were tolerant of Judaism, but they were not tolerant of this new movement around Jesus at all. It was disruptive, it was problematic, and uh, they wanted to, they got to a point where they wanted to crush it. And then you see a, a time in history between 66 and 70. This is outside of the text of the Bible. They call it the Jewish Wars. And there was a revolt against Rome, and Rome crushed that revolt. They would destroy the temple in the year 70. They would wipe it off. It's never since been rebuilt, and they crushed that rebellion. And that breeded uh, an animosity. The, the, the temple was destroyed. The, there was a rise of Gentile believers in the church. The church appealed to, to the Jews for help. The, the religious Jews, the leadership in Judaism wouldn't necessarily help them, wouldn't be favorable to them. And so what? There was an animosity that started to grow, a divide that started to grow. The new church, predominantly Gentile now, would be frustrated with, with the lack of support from Judaism. The Jews would be crushed by Rome. There would be uh, uh, Christianity would start to rise more and more, and you would see this divide between Jewish people and this new church. And it, and it grew and grew and grew. And the worst that it got and continued to get worse is when the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, legalized Christianity across the Roman Empire in the fourth century. And when he did that, there was a rush of early church literature, even before Constantine, that was decidedly against, against, I'm sorry, decidedly against the Jewish people. And you see this very, very clearly. The examples are disturbing. As early as 177, Irenaeus would say, the early church father, the scriptures are not yours, but ours. Again, this competition, this rivalry between the Jews and, this, and, and the church. Tertullian would say uh, between 160 and 225, he taught that God rejected the Jewish people and that Israel was now the servant of the church. Eusebius in the 4th century said that the Old Testament was for uh, Christians and not Jews and that only the curses applied to Israel. Can you see what would happen to the Jewish people over time? Their hearts would become hard. Their hearts would become hard because of what happened to them. Even Augustine, many people don't know this, wrote a, a famous, we call it the tract against the Jews. And he said the Jewish people should be mistreated. Constantine legalizes Christianity in the fourth century. And then there's more and more and more of this, more of a divide, more resentment, more hatred, more theology that was developed against the Jewish people. Even Luther, even Luther, the great reformer, and, this, and Jewish people will often appeal to this because they know that not a lot of Christians know this. Even Luther 
had an anti-Jewish vibe uh, in, in many of the writings. He writes a famous piece called The Jews and Their Lies. And he says this, their synagogue should be set on fire. Jewish prayer books should be destroyed. Rabbis forbidden to preach. The homes of Jews should likewise be smashed and destroyed. Their residents put under one roof or in a stable like gypsies to teach them. They are not master in our land. And what would happen? The heart would become hard. The hearts of the Jewish people would become hard over time. And this is exactly what Paul argues in the first century in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Lesson number one, as you read these chapters, and I would encourage you for homework, sit down this week, take a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, read Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11 in one sitting. Don't read a chunk and get up. Read it in one sitting. Don't worry about, I don't understand this. I don't understand that. I, I got to stop. Just read through the whole thing. It'll, it'll eventually, he'll make his point to you. Read the whole thing in one sitting, and you will see what he is saying here. Some of the truths just jump out of the page. Lesson number one, and if you get anything from this message, like I said, there's an urgency I feel about it. If you harden your heart toward God, if you harden your heart toward God, he may make it even harder. He may make it even harder. You see, even in Jesus's confrontations, with the ultra-religious. You see it in the book of Acts, Paul's confrontations with them after his conversion. You see it when Stephen is stoned in Acts chapter 7. And even Stephen uses this term, stiff-necked. It's a term that God used in the book of Exodus to describe his people when they, when they made the golden calf. Moses is up getting the commands from, from God on Mount Sinai, and the, the people get impatient and they start making a golden calf and God comments on this and he says you're it's a stiff-necked people stiff-necked in the sense of don't want to change your view don't want to bow your head don't want to change your position don't want to enlarge your understanding stubborn stiff-necked you see Stephen pull this phrase when he's being stoned to death by Paul before Paul's conversion to Christianity, you see, you see uh, 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 Stephen say this, you're, you're a stiff-necked people because of your refusal to believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and that he is the Son of God. God is speaking to you through Jesus and you are rejecting him. You're just as, we're just as stiff-necked as Exodus 32 and you're stiff-necked now. Now, granted, folk, there's, there's a segment, a defined segment of Jewish people who become followers of Jesus. You see this clearly in the scripture. Paul says it. He says God didn't abandon his people, but some hardened their hearts. When you harden your heart against God like Pharaoh did, be careful. God may turn around and make it even harder. So Romans chapter 11, verse 7, chapter 11 and verse 7. What then? What Israel sought to earnestly obtain, it did not obtain. But the elect 
did, the others were hardened. What's he saying? He's saying, here you have Israel, here you have the Jewish people, the Bible comes from them, everything comes from them, and yet they're not coming to Christ. Why? And he's saying, uh, uh, they tried to obtain it, yes, but they tried to obtain it by themselves. They tried to obtain it by works. They tried to obtain righteousness by themselves, and they didn't get it. Some did, and some didn't. The ones who didn't, they're hardened. Their hearts are hardened. Folks, it is one of the greatest ironies in the scripture. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh so the Jews get out of Egypt, and then he hardens their hearts because of their rejection of his son. Wow, this is a staggering thought. And even for us today, you've got to be careful. Keep your heart soft toward God. Don't harden your heart toward God. The, Paul will argue, and I think you could build a case from history, the Jewish people have hardened their hearts because of what was done to them. And God uses that to bring other people to himself. He will harden the heart even more for a greater purpose, for some other plan, for some other thing that he wants to accomplish. Verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you may become conceited. Speaking to these Gentile believers, Israel has experienced a hardening in part, in part. Why? Until the full number of Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, that's you, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. He will take that heart, he will harden that heart, and he will use that for some benefit for somebody else. Wow. Wow. Even when Jesus sent the apostles out, he said, if they reject your message, what do you do? Leave. Wipe the dust off your feet and leave because others will receive it even if some reject it. Even when Jesus told parables, sometimes people think that Jesus told parables to make things clearer. If, if you look at the scripture, Jesus tells parables to make it more confusing. At times, he does it to, to, to accomplish precisely this, to harden the heart of the person whose heart is already hard. And sometimes God will do that. Be careful. Keep your heart soft toward God. It doesn't matter what they did to you, folks. Again, we do the same thing as the Jewish people. Things were done to them. Their heart becomes hard toward God. It wasn't God who did those things. It was people who did those things. Be careful when people do things to you not to pin the tail on God, not to put your bullseye and your crosshair on God. It's God's fault. Somebody came in his name and did this to me and did that to me and did that to me, and so I'm angry at God. It wasn't God who did it. You can blame God. He makes a convenient target, but that person did that to you. Keep your heart soft toward God. Don't let it become hard toward God. Be careful because God may harden it even more. And he may harden it even more for a greater purpose. Second observation, his will and his plan. It, this is not constrained to one particular 
people or one particular generation. You know, folks, we, we are so short-sighted. We, we ha- for us, the clock is ticking backwards, you know? We're always in a rush. We get our 85, 90 years, whatever. If we're fortunate, we get a little longer, you know? Some people, even if they think they make it to 80, 85, they think, okay, I've done really well. And so the clock is kind of ticking backwards for us, and we're in a race against time. God is under no such pressure. He is under no constraint. He's not pinned to one particular generation or one particular country or one particular ethnicity or one particular time. You know, we change the clocks. I mean, God chuckles at this. We're we're changing clocks, and it's a big deal for us. We change our clock one hour. We lost an hour of sleep. It's a big deal for us. I think God chuckles at this, and our understanding of time is so small and so limited. God, he doesn't think about it that way. He's eternal. He's, he's out of time. He exists totally outside of time. And yet he intervenes in time all the time. He's never late. He's always on time. I mean, you could go on forever with, with the way that God reckons time and the way that he uses time. And here you see it here in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Again, I ask, did they stumble? Did, the, did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. God is working a bigger plan because of their transgression, because of their rejection of Jesus, because they refuse, because their stiff neck do not see Jesus as God coming in the flesh and speaking to them and bringing salvation to them and being raised from the dead. Because of that, what? Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make Israel envious. To make them envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, well, then how much greater riches will their fullness bring? He's saying, I'm working out a grand plan that goes beyond generation, goes beyond ethnicity, goes beyond race. I'm working out a grand plan, and it's not over because I'm in charge. Same thing that he did with with the Israelites in Egypt. He is the grand architect of the Exodus. He will use the Pharaoh. He will mock their religious view to demonstrate that he is sovereign and he is all-powerful and he does what he wants. He will harden who he wants to harden. He will have mercy on who he wants to have mercy. And he is no respecter of persons his be careful his will is not constrained to your little your little life folks you've got to think about it beyond the grave that's where God is going he's not thinking about oh boy you know so and so is running out of time folks he looks at the eternal he looks at the infinite where are you going when you leave this world that's a big question that God wants you to answer because your life here is really really short God sees it as way beyond way beyond this generation, your generation, your time. Finally, God calls you to trust him even when you don't understand. Even when you intellectually don't get it, even when it doesn't make any sense, he calls you to trust him. 
you know, the, the people ask Paul these questions and they say, but this is not fair. If God is hardening people's hearts, if God is doing that, it will then who resists his will then? It doesn't make any sense. It seems like God is just using people as, as little puppets. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 9, verses 19 to 21. One of you will say to me, why does God still blame us for who resists his will? And what does Paul say? He says, well, who are you to talk back to God? I mean, he's the potter, you're the clay. You're going to turn around and tell him, hey, why'd you form me like this? Why did you do this to me? He's in charge. He's the boss. Will you trust him even when you don't understand? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes, some, some for common use? Doesn't he have the right to do what he wants if he created you? Will you trust him and think that he's of sufficient character to work it all out in the end? Or will you reject him? Will your heart therefore become hard? And the great promise that Paul brings out here in the end in Romans chapter 11 is that if you trust God, if you hold on to him when you don't understand, even when you don't get it intellectually, look what God is going to do. Look what he's going to do for his own nation from verse 26 of Romans chapter uh, 11. And so all Israel will be saved. What? I mean, you've got today, you've got so many Jewish people who will say your, your Christianity, your New Testament is anti-Jewish. All your theologians are anti-Jewish. Here, look at your Paul. Your Paul is anti-Jewish. All Israel will be saved. Wow, that doesn't sound very anti-Jewish to me. It sounds like God has a grand master plan, and he's asking people, will you trust me when you don't understand? That is, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant that I will make with them when I take away their sins. And he talks about how they're chosen. He says they, they are the people. They are the people who God made a covenant with. God's call and his gifts are irrevocable. By the way, that's a little side blessing for you when God calls you. And when he gifts you, folk, you, it's irrevocable. You cannot use the gifts and the call that God gave you. But that's not his fault. That's, you've got to use it, folks. He's not revoking his call and his gifts to Israel, and he's not going to revoke them for you either. And so God is going to fulfill this promise, for God is going to be faithful. He is going to show mercy. Will you trust him even when you don't understand? And he concludes with this famous doxology, we call it. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out from the Exodus story to what we see in the modern time and his whole operation with his own people and with all of us. It's beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his 
counselor who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen next verse therefore i urge you in view of god's what mercy offer your bodies as living sacrifices what's he saying folks trust me when you don't understand will you believe that god is of sufficient character to carry you through when you don't get it will you keep your heart soft toward god and not allow it to become hard will you think about the grand big plan that god has for you that stretches way beyond even this life here this short time that you have here on earth would you stand with me we're going to close in prayer any musicians that are here you can go ahead and start playing as we finish up here father we come to you in the name of jesus and and lord i just sense uh, uh, you want us to understand how big you are you want us to understand how great you are you want us to understand that you truly are god you truly are sovereign you truly are all powerful you are beyond any other god or religious view lord you you are the one true god and eternal life lord we're we're so humbled and so privileged that you show mercy to us that you give us what we do not deserve lord that you reveal yourself over and over and over again to all people help us lord to be responsible responsive to you help us lord to keep our hearts soft toward the savior help us lord to be mindful and wise of the time that you have given to us help us lord to trust you even when we don't understand we we come to you on behalf of our own lives on behalf of our families our children lord uh, we just bring everything to you and ask that you would be the first thing you would be present you the same god yesterday today and forever would be the priority first and center in our lives we pray together today in jesus name amen 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 the lord bless you today the lord bless you remember to pick up your kids uh, on the way out and uh, i'll be mulling around over in the front have a wonderful wonderful sunday everyone Thank mm -hmm. you.